If there's one news item that caught the attention of ordinary St. Louis residents this week, it's the potential demise of the loop trolley. Supporters of the 2.2-mile rail system, like businessman Joe Edwards, want St. Louis County to provide $700,000 to keep the train afloat. St. Louisans don't give up on sports teams. They keep rooting for them, and the teams keep working for their fans. It's like this project is only it's kind of on the, like on this two-yard line, about to go in the end zone, but, oh, should we just walk away? Let's just say that the $700,000 request got a frosty reception from county politicians, like County Council Presiding Chairman Ernie Trakis. Before we get to a want like this trolley, let's take care of the needs we have first. On this edition of Politically Speaking, St. Louis Public Radio's Julio Donahue and Jacqueline Driscoll joined me to talk about the loop trolley's woes and other news items that made an impact in Missouri this week. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. Hello, welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Julie O'Donohue, and I'm here with my co-host, Jason Rosenbaum, and our other co-host in Jefferson City, Jacqueline Driscoll. We're here to talk about the news stories of the week. A little bit later in the program, we're going to be talking to Jacqueline about a story she put together on untested rape kits in Missouri. But for now, we're going to hit some of the highlights of other news stories this week. Uh, So, Jason, first I want to talk about the controversy over the Del Mar Loop trolley and its funding. Can you explain to us, before we get into what happened this week, what the historical context of the Del Mar Loop trolley controversy is? I I could, but it would probably take 300,000 minutes. (laughs) So I'm just going to explain it as simply as I can. The Loop trolley is about a 2.2-mile trolley that goes from the Missouri History Museum to the University City Library. And long story short, the people behind the Loop trolley came to the St. Louis County Council and asked for $700,000. $200,000 of that money would keep the trolley running through the end of the year. $500,000 of it would keep it operating in 2020. And and needless to say, the reaction to this hasn't been very positive from policymakers. I'm going to play a clip now from St. Louis County Executive Sam Page of him reacting to this request. The trolley has to be more than an expensive novelty. Our region needs transit, but it doesn't need a $52 million rolling comedy club. That is not a sustainable vision. And there's one thing for certain, status quo isn't working. The county council is not going to allocate this money. None of the three Republicans support this. And none of the four Democrats are very enthusiastic about this request. So that leaves trolley fans with either the city of St. Louis providing the money, which I also think is going to be a difficult sell trying to get more private sector money, which I think is going to be a difficult sell. The future of this endeavor is definitely in doubt. So why do you think people care so much about this trolley? I mean, it seems to be creating a lot of outrage 
across the region. It is definitely seems to be a symbol in my mind for something something else, maybe. I think it's a matter of priorities. Um, even if the money that went toward the trolley was just money that had to go to transportation-related things, I think there's a feeling that the trolley is a novelty and an unnecessary expense in a region that has so many gaping issues. It, it's kind of a way for people to get their aggression out um, in, against something that they feel is unnecessary. And I, I want to ask... The federal government put up quite a bit of money for this trolley. Uh, what happens? Do we have to pay the, or does someone have to pay the federal government back if the trolley ceases to operate? The short answer to your question is probably. I talked with Jim Wild of East West Gateway about this exact issue, and he talked with the federal government, and they're trying to determine how much federal money would have to be paid back if the trolley shuts down. They probably won't have a number for a few days. But I think that answer basically says, yes, there is going to have to be money paid back. And and undoing this is going to be really challenging. If you go to Del Mar in the loop, there's been a lot of physical changes made to the roads and to accommodate this trolley and just tearing it up and repaving it. It's not going to be easy and it's going to cost a lot of money. My only comment, as someone who hasn't been following this very um, closely, certainly not as closely as Jason, you know, I've seen a lot of comments about how they should use private funding to to support the trolley. I would say having having grown up in a city with a pretty robust public transit system, there's always this thought that private funding can support public transit and it rarely rarely works out that way. So I've I I'm a little skeptical of the idea that even if you found someone to put up the money that that would be a long-term solution. So, why don't we move on to our next topic? Um, The Kansas City Star and the St. Louis Post-Dispatch reported this week that there is a bit of a kerfuffle over whether uh, the Governor Parsons campaign manager, Steele Shippey, will be required to, uh, I guess, submit himself to a deposition uh, over the licensing of Planned Parenthood in Missouri, uh, the only place in Missouri that provides abortions. Uh, the, The rub is essentially that uh, Steel Shippy was intimately involved in conversations to maybe not renew the license of the Planned Parenthood facility in St. Louis uh, when he was working for the governor in his communications office uh, in Jefferson City. So, Jacqueline, why should we care about this story? Well, <laughs> I think it's important um personally, because he was, it appears, based off of the reporting um, done by the Kansas City Star and the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, he was very closely involved. Um, he was editing documents through Google Docs that sh- that pointed out some of the deficiencies of Planned Parenthood that eventually were set to, were, were supposed to be the reason why Planned Parenthood's license was no longer issued. Um, so, it's it's a little bit concerning because he did work for the governor's um, communications team, and it makes it look like a political move. I think there's a lot of abortion issues going on, so I want to clarify. This is a not about the legislation related to abortion. This is about whether a Planned Parenthood facility in St. Louis should uh, retain its license that allows it to operate and offer abortions. And I think... Um, People who are skeptical of Steel Shippy's involvement would say, 
if the license is supposed to be based on whether we're operating appropriately, why does the governor's communications person have any expertise on that subject matter? Um, Jason, it sounds like the state argued unsuccessfully that Steel Shippy should not be submitted to an interview or a deposition because he was being harassed by Plant Parenthood. What do you think of those uh, statements? I, I don't know. I don't want to make a value judgment on the legal argument. I, I do wonder like how valuable Steel Shippy is going to be for this entire enterprise. I think that probably people within the Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services would probably be the the, the primary sources for this. My assumption is Steel Shippy was probably doing a lot of like the communications and messaging for this move and maybe was communicating with some of those people, but that would, I don't know how valuable that information is going to be compared to talking with the principals, if you understand what I'm saying. I've known Steel for a long time. He helped run Jay Ashcroft's successful Secretary of State's campaign. He worked for Jay Ashcroft before moving into the Parson administration as the communications director. Um, and now he is the, that's the running Governor Parson's uh, campaign for a full four-year term. So he's well-known throughout Missouri politics. A lot of reporters have dealt with Steele either if they have some question for Jay Ashcroft or for, for now Governor Parson. And I'm sure that we're all communicating with him if we want to talk about campaign things. So definitely puts a high-profile figure, I guess, in a high-profile legal fight. I think the governor's office is maintaining, if I'm reading the stories correctly, that Steele was mostly editing documents related to press releases, which would go to Jason's point that he would be have been involved in the communications and the messaging. I think there's a little bit of dispute about exactly what he was doing. Uh, if right, I'm reading right. the articles correctly. Yeah, it said that Kelly Jones, um, the governor's current communications director, said that Shippy was never really working on anything outside of his normal role um, when he was in the position working as the communications director for the governor. Um, again, that's being disputed by Planned Parenthood, as we've seen in um, the Kansas City Star and St. Louis Post-Dispatch reporting. Um, it. I, I think it's interesting. I think it's going to be interesting to follow, but I, I, I'm kind of leaning on the side of Jason. I don't know how valuable the testimony will be, but it will be interesting to see it play out and see how involved he was. We're going to move on to our next topic, which I think I'm the only one that wants to talk about, <laughs> which is Senator Hawley going to Hong Kong. The junior senator from Missouri, Josh Hawley, made a trip to Hong Kong where he seemed to talk to a lot of journalists, protesters. He was certainly active on social media about this. Uh, the interesting aspect of this is that Hong Kong is in the news very prominently right now because uh, the NBA is in a bit of hot water for not, I would say, not pushing back on China with regards to uh, pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong. Yeah, so, specifically, the Houston Rockets GM tweeted out a supportive tweet in favor of the protests, and China is very, very angry. This this is not uncommon. If somebody makes some favorable comment about Taiwan, they get the same way. I Yeah, I would totally agree with you. This, this is not uncommon. I think that there is something unusual about this in that it's kind of happening in a realm where people normally aren't paying attention to that. It's sort of casting a pall over the beginning of the NBA season because they're over there to play games and kind of open open up uh, the beginning of the season. And they're having to respond to comments about whether 
Uh, they think China should be held responsible for uh, what's going on in Hong Kong. And I think that Senator Hawley is there for broader reasons than the NBA, even though it, he, he has commented on like what LeBron James said about that. If you've listened to Senator Hawley as, since he's announced as a federal candidate, he's taken a pretty hard line against China on a lot of different things, whether it be trade or human rights. I'm not sure how much that dovetails with what President Trump thinks about China, because frankly, Trump is all over the place. Some days he's saying China's the worst thing in the world. The other, he's like saying China is great and, and things. It's really hard to follow, to be to be very candid. I think Senator Hawley thinks that there is genuine, genuine groundswell of out- outrage against China trying to like micromanage messaging when it comes to American entities. And he, he, he clearly thinks that that is a, a cause worth fighting for. With regards to Senator Hawley, I kind of see this concern about Kong, Hong Kong dovetailing nicely with his concerns about big tech. Do you see a connection there? Possibly. Um, interestingly, this entire China imbroglio, second week in a row I've used that term, has popped up at the same time like South Park has made a big issue of that. I watched South Park pretty religiously. And before this NBA thing happened, they were doing an entire arc about how entertainment companies are constantly sucking up to China and censoring themselves in order to make a lot of money there. And this has been a question that businesses and politicians have made, again, for decades about whether the cost of angering China and offending them is worth it when the economic opportunity is so vast. And Honestly, I think the consensus of a lot of politicians and businesses have said, yes, it is worth it. I think a lot of a lot of entities have said, yeah, we will kowtow to China because there's a billion people there and we could make untold amount of money there. And, it, and they haven't taken that same approach with Cuba or other authoritarian regimes. I think that we're going to go back to the status quo and forget about this and we'll keep doing business with China just because – It's within the best interest of a lot of entities. We're going to take a quick break for a minute and hear a message from our sponsor. And we're back. I'm Julie O'Donohue. I'm talking to Jacqueline Driscoll about a story we're doing on untested rape kits in Missouri. Uh, Jacqueline, can you give us a summary of uh, what is going on with rape kits in Missouri? Sure. There are thousands of untested rape kits. Um, uh, Speaking with Attorney General Eric Schmidt, there was a voluntary survey that went out a few years ago that ended up turning up close to 5,500 untested rape kits. But after they looked into that uh, survey, they realized that probably less than half of the required agencies actually responded. So it's probably more around 10,000 untested rape kits. And they're just sitting on evidence shelves in police departments. They're sitting on shelves in the hospitals. There's several reasons why these tests have been sitting on shelves. Sometimes victims go to the hospital and they come in and they say that they've been sexually assaulted or they've been raped and they just don't want to get any diseases but they don't want to press any charges so they go ahead and they they complete a rape kit and because of HIPAA the hospitals are required to keep those kits so that is some of the reason but there's also several other reasons sometimes police officers don't believe the victims so they don't submit the tests 
um, for DNA evidence. So a lot of them are just sitting there waiting. We have no idea really how many there are. So um, Attorney General Eric Schmidt, um, he has a grant that uh, former Attorney General Josh Hawley actually received to um, kind of create this team to go around the state of Missouri and getting an actual inventory of these kits. And that's just step one. That It's been several months. They're almost complete. They're expected to be done by the end of this month, um, essentially just counting how many kits are untested in the state. That's just the first step. Do we have an idea of where these rape kits that are untested tested if they're across the state or they're concentrated in certain areas? Is there any sort of accounting of of where they might be? They didn't give me um, specifics from each quadrant, really. They's not quadrant. That would imply that there's only four, but they did separate the state into different sections, right? And so that's how the team kind of began their inventory, and they worked through different sections of the state. There are untested rape kits everywhere throughout the state. Obviously, the bigger cities, um, they're working in the St. Louis metropolis area right now. Um, The bigger cities have more. It's taking longer because they have, you know, bigger hospitals, bigger police departments, but they are all over the state. Why did you decide to pursue this story? What, what, how did you find the story and what drew you to it? Well, this was something that I spoke about with Attorney General Eric Schmidt's office. This is one of his main initiatives. Um, they call it the Safe Kits Initiative. And as soon as I heard that there were just thousands upon thousands of untested kits, that's what sparked my interest. I know that this is not unique to Missouri. There are states across the country that have untested kits, but there are also states across the country that have online database systems that they can use to track where these kits are at. They can use to cross-compare DNA samples to hopefully put um, serial rapists or, or repeated sexual offenders in prison behind bars, and Missouri doesn't have that yet. Luckily, um, the attorney general is working on that. Obviously, we are only through the uh, inventory process, just winding, wrapping up on that. But the next phase will be creating that online data- database system where not only medical professionals and police officers can have access to it, but victims can too. The victim that I spoke with for this story, Taylor Hearth, who did agree to be identified after her kit was submitted and she gave her statement, she didn't get any information. Anytime she wanted any information on her rape kit or the case, she had to initiate that call. And this online database is something that victims can go to. They can see where the kit is, if it's been tested, um, possibly when it's going to be tested. They don't have the exact details yet, but it's at least something for these victims who are trying to move on with their life and maybe a a piece of justice may help do that. This is a, a way to get that going. I don't think a lot of people understand what goes through, what a, a woman or a man goes through when they're collecting evidence for, for a rape kit. Can you explain what you know about that process? Sure. It's it's incredibly detailed. It's incredibly invasive. Uh, I spoke to a sexual assault nurse examiner, as I've mentioned several times, and she gave, she basically walked me through the entire kit. It took just our interview. We weren't actually going through step by step, but just our interview took about an hour and a half just so she could walk me through all the important parts. The first um, item that it, typically nurses like to do in the beginning is the interview process, and oftentimes they like to have a police officer 
officer in the room just so the victim doesn't have to give their statement multiple times because as people know, reliving that experience can be very traumatizing. So they only want to have to do it once. But that interview process is incredibly invasive, as I mentioned. It does not just focus on the assault, um, because if that victim were to have had consensual sex prior, there may be additional DNA that is found. And the nurses need to know about that. They need to know what of what of this DNA is considered to be the rapist DNA and what might be considered the consensual sex DNA and not just um, when you've had sex but what kind of sex this was uh, a piece that I included in my story about you know was it vaginal sex was it oral sex it's it's incredibly invasive this is your private life and you have to give all that information and the physical exam is not easier um, you know they have to look at every crevice of your body. Um, It can feel like you're under a microscope. Oftentimes they use an alternate light source to shine um, lights on some of your most private parts to look for um, saliva, look for seminal fluid anywhere that DNA may be. Um, So it's it's very difficult. Um, The sexual assault nurse examiner that I spoke with, she made it seem pretty routine because she's done it for decades, but it's not lost on her that this is sometimes... Um, you know, this is something that's very hard for victims and survivors. I understand what you're saying about why some rape kits go untested. I was curious about whether there, you got any indication whether financial issues are ever at play here. Like, do rape kits go untested because people can't don't want to pay to have them tested? Did anyone bring that up? Uh, that was a question that I asked. Was it manpower? Was it resources? And they skirted that question. Right. It, it, it was never fully answered. It does cost money to get sent to the labs. And that's why if, you know, the victim doesn't want it tested, obviously for her wishes, for her, his wishes, they're not going to get it tested. But it does cost money. So if the DNA kit may not provide the evidence that's needed, why use those resources if they can prosecute in other ways? Uh, that, that was obviously a question that I had because law enforcement specifically is always saying that they're you know, they're strapped for cash. They they don't have a lot of the resources that they do need. Um, but it was never a, a question that I got fully answered. The part of the grant that the attorney general's office has now, they will have some funding to test some of those kits. I think right now it's about only 1,400 of those kits they can pay to have tested. Um, so they will need additional funds if they plan to get some tested, more than those 1400s, uh, 1400 kits rather. So um, yeah, it is, it is cost restrictive. Before we wrap up, are there any things that you hope people take away from your story when they hear it or read it? Sure. Um, I think the most important part as I was putting this story together is although my survivor, Taylor Hearth, did get justice because of her DNA kit, because her kit got tested, her rapists are now behind bars because they felt emboldened to rape again and it was a hit somewhere else. So they put those rapists behind bars. But this is far from over. This is not the case for all victims. Some of those rape kits that are sitting on shelves have been there for decades are now outside of the statute of limitations. So those victims will never even receive the opportunity to have justice served. This is not a happy story. Yes, Missouri is taking steps 
to make sure that this never happens again. And I don't want to end on a sad note, but this is something that states, Missouri included, need to implement the systems to make sure that victims' rape kits, who they they want to get tested, they go through this horrible an invasive process of getting these, this DNA collected and it, it sits on a shelf. It's just, it's so hard to talk to um, survivors that this has happened to. So I'm very glad that the attorney's office is taking the steps to make sure that they can clear out this backlog, but this is something that the media, um, victims, advocates, and survivors themselves needs to make sure that this never happens again. Okay, thanks so much, Jacqueline. You can read and listen to Jacqueline's story at stlpublicradio.org. It aired on Wednesday. The St. Louis Blues visited the White House and President Donald Trump on Wednesday, as is tradition for the winners of the Stanley Cup and most major professional sports teams who win championships. Um, and it, it, this is a conversation that's come up basically since President Trump has been in office. But there was a bit of a conversation about whether all the players were going to go, who was going to go. In this case, I think everyone went. And what I noticed was that there were a lot of Missouri politicians there, but not a lot of Democratic politicians. It's not surprising that Lacey Clay, who is the congressman that represents the area where the Scott Trade Center is, wasn't there since he's called for President Trump to be impeached. Like, I don't it look kind of weird if like he said that and was then standing next to Trump next to Stanley Cobb. But it did make for some entertaining fodder between President Trump and Congressman Billy Long of Springfield. Auction off the Stanley Cobb. And he didn't know I was going to. You won't believe this, sir. And I, I've never been to auction school either. So. All right, gonna buy the Stanley Cup here. Hi, and who get twenty-five? Would you get thirty thousand dollars? How about a thirty? Thirty-five, forty. You able to buy forty-five, forty-five, fifty? How about a fifty-thousand dollars now? Five, able to buy sixty? Now five, sixty-five. Get that satisfied look off your face. You're out. Sixty-five, seventy. I have sold at sixty-five thousand dollars. By the way, Congressman Long was an auctioneer before he was a congressman. I don't know. I don't. I don't. I, I wanted to mention that, but I think probably our listeners could figure that out from that clip. <laughs> I had not heard that. That is amazing. Yeah, he's done that a lot. And after he did that, he had the president sign his tie, and he's going to auction the tie off to benefit St. Jude. Whether sports teams are going to visit a particular president has been an issue for several years. Uh, there is an American ice hockey goalie that played for the Boston Bruins who did not visit uh, the White House when the Boston Bruins won the Stanley Cup uh, because he didn't agree with or like President Obama. So this has been a long, long-standing issue, but it's gotten, it's kind of heightened and become something that people speculate more about since President Trump's come to office. Uh, but this all brings us to I wanted to talk to Jacqueline and Jason about their favorite moments in intersections of politics and sports. Well, you know, when you asked this question, I originally was going to talk about Brock Olivo, who is the Mizzou football running back who made an ill-fated bid for Congress. But I talked about that last week, so I feel like I can't be redundant. My favorite interaction between politics and sports in recent memory was the entire situation of the Rams leaving St. Louis for Los Angeles and the bid to try and get a new stadium in St. Louis. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because then-Governor Nixon was trying to get bonds approved on a state level without the legislature actually voting on them. 
and it led to this legendary exchange between myself and the governor. They may be trying to do this to bring you to the table, but isn't that significant enough opposition to give you pause about whether doing it by fiat is workable? Uh, I, first of all, I, I don't know what this term you're making up as far as doing it by some sort of uh, French car it has got to do with uh, what we're talking about. This is a very Are open process. Issuing no. the bonds without a legislative or popular vote. By the way, Fiat is not a French car. It's an Italian car. And I played that clip to Governor Nixon last year, and he gracefully acknowledged that point. Well, I feel like this is an easy one, but the whole... I, I think it was last year, my years are blurring together, when the NFL players were taking the knee or not coming out during the national anthem. I know that that's not a particular positive um, event that took place because a lot of people felt very disrespected by it, th thought that um, several people were disrespecting our flag or our veterans. But um, I just really enjoyed the spirit of how several of the NFL players came together and stood for a cause that they believed in. I just thought it was, I don't know, it was kind of inspiring uh, to take their opportunity in the spotlight to shine light on a bigger cause that they actually believed in whether everyone believed in it or not it just it just felt a little unifying rather than you know the smack talk that you see on the field so my favorite moment is from 1998 the nagano japan winter olympics um it was an earlier round of the ice hockey uh competition in which the czech republic played russia to advance and i remember this game pretty vividly because it included both Dominic Kashuk and Yarmir, Yarmir Yager playing for the Czech Republic. Um, and the Czech Republic won, and it was like quite a moment. Um, so that's what I remember. If you have a chance, go back and read about it. It's pretty unbelievable. That wraps it up for this episode of Politically Speaking. Fred Ehrlich is our politics editor. Shula Newman is our executive editor. And John Larson is our sound engineer. Uh, I'm Julie O'Donohue. You can reach me on Twitter at J.S. O'Donohue. Jason? Jay Rosenbaum. And where can we find you, Jacqueline? Triscoll NPR. And you can find our stories at stlpublicradio.org. Thanks so much. Thank you.